Well, good morning. I want to uh, play a game with you as we start uh, the ser- time of sermon today, and that is a fill-in-the-blank game. So I'm going to read some things, and I want you to fill in the blank of what it is that you think falls in uh, the blank here. So we'll start off with this. This, this thing, whatever it is that comes in your mind, it is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It, this again, fill in the blank, goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Okay, one more time. Blank. How rich and how pure it is. How measureless and strong. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write about this thing would drain the ocean dry and nor could the scroll contain the whole through those stretched from sky to sky. So some of you recognize that ancient song. But what is it? What is that thing that is grand enough, that is great enough, measureless, strong enough that we could write about it with everything we can imagine in our minds um, and we'd run out of ink and there wouldn't be enough scrolls? What is that thing that is there today? Um, That is what we're going to be talking about. Uh, Some of you guessed it right away. If you're watching online, you're joining us today and you're with somebody in the room, take your guess out loud. What do you think it is? Uh, Sure, some of you got this right or at least got a version of it. Uh, But that song is called The Love of God. And it is going to be for us the fourth marker of what it is that we've been talking about, renewal and identity. It's going to be the fourth marker to understand who it is that we are. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. Romans chapter 8, the last section there in Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles or following along at home, in just a moment we're going to be headed that way. Before we do that though, just want to recap where we are. As I mentioned, we're in this series on renewal, as Paul said earlier. And uh, we've we've already looked at uh, three key areas markers of our identity Um, and as pastor mike keeps saying it's not just who we think we are but what's most important is what god says about us who god sees us as and how we're defined that way so the first one um, is this idea that we are highly valued in other words we are created beings we are not autonomous we did not make ourselves we are not the source of our own life there's something outside of us that has created us therefore we live in a world we didn't create we live by in the rules of a world we did not create And it is very easy to forget that and think of ourselves more highly than we should. But we need to know that we are created, and not just created, but created specifically that humans are created with this image of God, as Pastor Mike talked about, uh, that gives us intrinsic value no matter what, that no one can take away uh, this intrinsic value that we have because we are created by God. So that's number one. Number two is not just that we are created beings or highly valued, but we're also uh, that we are deeply fallen. Um, So this is the one that begins to brush against the grain of culture today a little bit. Uh, But early on in the biblical narrative, we see that right after God creates us and the story is good and paradise exists, uh, that paradise is lost. Um, And quickly we see uh, that sin enters the world. And this is not some outside source necessarily that creeps in, but it it is something that inside of man and inside of woman exists that wants them to deny God as the creator, live in the world as if their own rules are more important, as if they know more than God. And that's not just true about uh, ancient ancestors, that's true about every human today as well. And so we are not trying to figure out what's the problem in the environment out there that we can try to solve in order for the world to be right again. That's not how it works. It's actually something that's true about every person. It is something inside of us as well. First and foremost, the Bible calls this word sin, and it is a reality that uh, we must understand. must understand that about who we are and our own identity, but also how to operate in the world. 
So the third uh, marker that Pastor Mike mentioned last week was that we are eternally designed. So in other words, this is not uh, the only life that we have. This is, this is not the whole story is what we see. We're not trying to squeeze the most out of every single moment here because we are living in light of eternity that's there. Um, I, I joked uh, this past week uh, that if you watched the sermon last week, uh, you were part of that service. Uh, you may have had to visit your dentist uh, this past week like I did because uh, Pastor Mike you know, kind of kicked my teeth in a little bit with some of the realities of trying to think about, am I, and forced all of us to ask this question, am I living as if this is my only life? Am, am I living in some sort of anxiety or desire to get what's there as if this is the only time that would be? And similarly, with the challenges I face, with the sufferings that I go through, am I acting like this is it and it's not a a moment in time in light of the eternity that God has designed us to live inside of. So those three things mark us in significant ways, as does this fourth one we will look at in Romans chapter 8 today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to not look just generically at the love of God, but specifically how God has demonstrated his love for us. So I want to read beginning in verse 31 through the end of the chapter for us today. You can follow along on the screen uh, with this as well. So Romans chapter 8 verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against us whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was also raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the key verse I want to look at today, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? But as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Know in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So Romans chapter 8 has this just beautiful, poetic, rhetorical ending. Scholars call this an inclusio, a uh, kind of bracketing end to a larger argument that Paul has been making. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to this church in Rome, this extensive uh, letter that's there. And we're picking up right in the middle of it, as you can imagine. Starts off with, what then shall we say in response to these things? So we're certainly picking up right in the middle of, of what, he, what it is he's doing. Um, and at the crux of what Paul's trying to have the church understand at the end of this letter is the love of God and what it is that might, they might think, can separate them from the love of God. So as we begin to think about how we are greatly loved as the fourth identity marker, I think uh, this morning there are four ways that we see in this passage and as we look at the New Testament in general, um, four things, four responses, four realities that we might respond to this idea that we are greatly loved. Um, one is to just simply ask, do we know it? And we may not know it. Number two is, do we understand it? Uh, number three is, do we believe it? And then number four is, do we experience it? So that's going to drive the time today. The first one, do you know it, is actually the simplest question 
uh, to begin with, because I'm really asking this more of an informational question, like have you Googled it, right? Do you have the information or not? Most people that are tuning in today probably have heard somewhere in their life that God loves them greatly. That is not a surprise to most people. Now, uh, we have a global missions agency, or global missions partnership inside of Christ Church, and we pray for and we send money to, and we send out missionaries around the world to places where people have not heard of God's love and have not heard of Jesus Christ. And that is, that is a uh, significant thing in what we do here. Um, and it is a, it is a big deal. Um, but most people in the West, most people in the United States, most people that are tuning in today um, would have heard, they would have at least had knowledge that God loves them. Uh, later on in Romans chapter 10, just two chapters later, Paul asked this question. He's like, how will they hear? And the only way they'll, how will they believe? I'm sorry. And the only way they'll believe is if they hear. But how will they hear unless somebody actually goes to them to tell them about it? And how will someone go to them unless we are sending people out? So it is a big part of the New Testament church. Um, It's a big part of what we do here at Christ Church. But today, just simply asking that question is, do you know that? If you do not, hopefully by the end of the service today, that is one of the boxes that uh, you can check and you say that you know it. Um, the second question, though, is do you understand this love of God? Do you actually understand what it means that God loves you uh, greatly? I think for most of us, this is, this is going to be one of the places where we connect a little bit better with the passage today is asking that question. Do I, what does it really mean uh, to be greatly loved by God? Um, and one of the reasons I bring this up because I think it's, it's very easy to slightly misunderstand God's love. Again, God's love is talked about so regularly in a culture like ours that it doesn't offend us when someone says it. Um, In other cultures and in other times, even in the United States of America, there are aspects of who God is, attributes that are true about God that were a lot easier for people to believe. If we talked about the justice of God or the wrath of God or the sovereignty of God or one of these other true attributes of who God is, it was easier for other generations than ours to believe in some of those things and maybe more difficult for them to believe in Uh, that God has loved them greatly, right? If I say, for example, um, God greatly loves Hitler or pick some character in history who's like, hold on, wait, what do you mean he greatly loves Hitler? Like that, that doesn't make sense. If you had a friend who said that, like, I love Hitler, you immediately would be backpedaling and saying, wait, what does it mean that you actually love this person? Because this type of person is not there. But today in our culture, uh, we are so commonly said how great we are um, and we think pretty highly of ourselves in general, that when we hear God loves us, it's almost like, yes, of course he does, which takes me to the first misunderstanding or the first uh, copycat um, uh, false view of what it means to understand the love of God. So the first one I want you to think about it with me is the sentimental view of God's love. And this really is what it says, is that when someone hears God loves them, they go, well, of course, everybody loves me. I've been told I've loved since I was a little kid, and I've got good grades, and I've on and on and on and on. And so it's easy to say I, that I believe that God loves me. And it's, a, it's more of a sentimental type of understanding of the way it is that God in his, uh, in his greatness and grandness and ultimate creation would view a little person, a little individual like me. God is the God who sends me positive emojis all the time, right? That is maybe the way that I would view him. I would think about him in that way. Uh, I'll, pick on, um, I'll pick on a song, but the, the reason we think this Uh, can be any number of reasons, right? Um, There is a really sentimental song. Some of you probably sung this at your kid's wedding or you've been at places where this is. It's a great song. Bob Carlisle, 
has a song about butterfly kisses, and it goes like this. It says, for butterfly kisses after bedtime prayer, sticking little white flowers all up in her hair, walk beside the pony daddy, it's my first ride. I know the cake looks funny, but I did the best I tried. And then it goes on, perfume and makeup, ribbons and curls, on and on. I have three young girls, right? This song, it makes sense to me that's there. But sometimes we'll take a sentimental song like that that is filled with whatever those warm, fuzzy feelings connected to something like that that's a fa- that is a daughter-father relationship, and we'll project that toward God, and essentially we'll say, God loves me, and what we mean by that is God would never ask me to change. He, he would never expect something different of me than what it was. God approves and accepts of anything and everything that I do, and that is a sentimental view of God that a lot of people in the world have today, and that when you ask them or when you see something in the Scripture that makes you want to change, you revert to this sentimental view and you say, no, that, that can't be who God is. That can't be what his love for me means because what uh, this domesticated sentimental view of God's love is, is that uh, we really are making up the rules, not him on that side. So sentimental is one of the ways we can misunderstand God's love. Another one um, is, I'll call it the resume, uh, the resume view of God's love. Um, I grew up in the South, so in the Bible Belt, this is a much more common view um, that's there. Some of you are Midwesterners. You have, you have great Midwestern values. You have some sort of you know, Catholic uh, moralistic view of the world that's there. And so this may be something that is uh, deeply ingrained inside of your own instincts when you hear that God loves you. And that is this, is that you know that God's love is for those who keep the rules. That, that God loves those who are on one side of the moral framework, right? God loves the people over here, and he is asking the people over here, not on that side, to kind of move across the aisle. Like, you need to be over here in order for me, God, to love you. And so you have a resume view of God. Whatever is on the resume scale, it could be uh, contributing good works to society. It could be making great things. It could be wealth or education or um, something like that. It could just be personal morality or piety. Uh, But in your own mind, you think that God's love is associated with the people who earn it. The people who, when they sign up for the the, um, interview, that their resume is good enough that God accepts them based on something that they have done. And when you think about God's love, that is actually your instinct is to do that. Unlike the sentimental people, you're like, no, God doesn't love me for who I, who I am without changing me. God loves me when I do the things that he wants me to do, right? That's your instinct, okay? So one, sentimental, two, resume, and three, I'll call it the establishment view. And that is simply um, that you are in the right crowd, right? Your tribe or your family or those in who you associate with are the kinds of people that in your mind God would uh, smile upon, right? And so if we go back to Romans, this Greco-Roman world, certainly this Jew-Gentile debate that would have been current. The Jewish people who would have been reading this letter from Paul when they're asking this question, what can separate us from the love of God? One of the things they would have been thinking about is that their birthright, the, the family in which they came into the world, actually helps separate them one way or the other, toward receiving God's love and favor or towards being outside of that, right? And so the Jewish people, for the most part, would have seen themselves by birthright or by proximity to God's promises, they would have seen themselves as receiving or be recipients of the love of God. Whereas on the other hand, they may have looked across the aisle or others may have said, because I am not one of these Jewish people, that I don't receive the love of God or I'm not, I'm not a candidate uh, to be a recipient of whatever it is that this great promise is to be loved uh, greatly that's there. And so really the establishment view is that in that day and also in our day as well is that there's kind of a clan or a group 
in which God has given a thumbs up to, right? And if we can kind of get in that family or that tribe or associate ourselves with those people, if we can, if we can uh, follow that way, then we will also be, uh, we will also experience the love of God. I, th- I think all three of those are ways that we um, get part of God's love right, but we actually s- skew it by misunderstanding it and making that the exclusive way that's there because God's love ultimately isn't simply sentimental. It, it certainly isn't just moralistic or your resume, and it's not the tribe that you're a part of or the, if you're in the establishment or not. That's not it. Those are all misunderstandings of what it means to, to, uh, to receive and understand the love of God. So how is it that, if those are negative ways, how is it that we positively actually begin to interact with and engage and rightly understand uh, the love of God? Um, <laughs> this, this should be a sermon or a sermon series entirely by itself. I'm going to give it to you really quickly, and I'm stealing all of these points from a book. Uh, John Stott has a book called The Cross of Christ, and he's trying to dig deeper into what the cross means, what God's love demonstrated in the cross, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. What does that actually mean? And he gives four very quick ways to understand it, and they build on each other. The first one is this, is that Christ died for you. That's what it says. We see that in the, in the verse we just read in verse 32. That's there. It says that Christ, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That Christ died for you. Now, that doesn't explain what happened. That doesn't explain the meaning. It just simply states the reality is part of understanding God's love is to begin to understand that Christ died for you. Secondly, it's just not that Christ died for you, but Christ died for you to bring you to God or to reconcile you, to make, a, to make right something that was not right between a human or human race and between God. That what Christ did when he died is that Christ died in order to bring us to God. This is where we get words like uh, forgiveness or redeemed or delivered or rescued or these great words inside of the scriptures uh, that God used in order to explain to us what he is accomplishing. Not just that he died, but what the meaning of that death actually is. So he didn't just die, he died, uh, f- he died to bring us and reconcile us to God. And number three, Stott says that he died for our sins. Now this is picking up on that second identity marker Pastor Mike mentioned, this uh, deeply fallen reality about who we are, is that our sins were this barrier. There was something in between us and God that needed to be removed in order for that relationship to be made right again, right? And so this is putting together the pieces of God's justice and God's love to begin to understand that and that our sins must be dealt with in some way and that Christ's death is the thing that deals with that. And then fourthly, the last one is that Christ's death is actually for our own death. That Christ died so that we did not have to, is what Stott says. The fourth kind of layer of meaning to begin to understand what Christ's death means, what God's love in Christ means, is that we understand that Christ died for our death. Earlier in Romans, um, this is is how Paul's kind of looping some of the stuff back in. He says, the wages of sin is death. That's what he says. The wages, the result, the payment, um, the paycheck for sin sinful behavior is actually death. And so Christ is, by dying, he's stepping into that payment to receive, to pay that payment that we owed that is there. And so Christ has died for our death. Now, many of you are in here and you're saying, okay, I understand that, right? I get it. I may even have to think a little bit more about is my view of God uh, leaning towards being more sentimental or more resume-oriented, more moralistic, whatever that is. Um, is, it, is that something I need to correct? Yeah, maybe so. But really the question for me is not do I know it and not do I understand it. It's the next question I want you to look at and ask. And that is, 
do you believe it? Do you actually believe um, whether or not uh, that God loves you deeply? There are, um, there's two kind of headings inside of the passage that we looked at. At least I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tuck them underneath these two. The first one is um, the accusations that would be brought up to make you doubt, uh, to make you question whether you are actually loved deeply. So when Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God? One of the things he said is, who is it that condemns you? What accusation is running inside of your heart, inside of your head, in order to tell you that you are not loved by God? If you have attempted to follow Jesus, or you've been trying to follow Jesus for a while, you know that this is one of the realities in which you live in, right? You, you likely deal with doubt at a small level or a grand level um, because of this. Not only are you dealing with the questions you have in your own mind where you're rehearsing uh, ways where you feel like you didn't get up early enough to read your Bible or pray enough or miss church or give enough money or that you're drinking too much or that you're whatever it is, right, that is true about your life where you're saying, oh, if, if it is true uh, that I'm not a good enough parent, if it is true that I can't keep a job like I want, is, if it's true that, that uh, something about my moral behavior or standard doesn't live up to God, then there is no way he could actually love me. And so we begin to accuse ourselves um, to say that, no, God couldn't love us that way. And then not only that, but we're also dealing with, and Romans talked about this a little bit earlier, we're dealing with a spiritual reality that there is actually an accuser, a father of lies who is going to whisper things that are not true about God and that are not true about us, and we have to fight that battle as well. So one of the reasons we don't believe we're greatly loved is because we're constantly dealing with accusations in our own minds and from outside of us, and we're having to navigate that reality. But what, what Paul says here is, hey, guess what? Those accusations are going to come. That's right. But there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. And we're going to explain that why a little bit more. So one is the accusations. The second thing that keeps us from believing this, not just understanding it, the second thing that keeps us from believing this are the circumstances that we live in. So what Paul mentions here, kind of he details out, he's like, what circumstances are you thinking of that might make you think that you are not greatly loved by God? Is it danger? Is it sword? Is it famine? Is it hardship? Right? What are these, and these are extremely common in that day, but what is it in your life that keeps you from feeling and understanding and knowing the love of God, right? What health situation is going on in your life where you really are telling yourself when you go to sleep at night, you know what, if God loved me deeply or greatly, as the pastor said today, this would not be true. The test score would not resolve or would not show this marker, right? That, that's what we think, we tell ourselves. We have a relationship going on. We have difficulty at work. We have something going on with one of our kids or one of our parents. There's something in our life where we're constantly telling ourselves, you know what, if God loved me, this would not be in my life anymore. And that is the instinct uh, that we have that's there. And so because of that, we don't believe what it is that God is saying is true about us, that he has demonstrated his love for us in this way through, uh, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we have accusations and we have circumstances that we have to navigate uh, through. So the first thing, asking just simply, do you have the knowledge, do you know, um, of this great love that is true about you as a person? This, the second one is, do you understand it, do you understand it rightly? Um, as Romans and others are able to explain that to us. And thirdly is, do you believe it? Um, and each one of those has its own challenges. And the fourth question I want to ask you today is, 
because uh, many of you are maybe tracking with me and you're like, yep, I know it, understand it. For the most part, obviously no one does comprehensively, but I get what you're saying. I think I'm tracking. And even right now in my life, I would say I can believe it. And some of those other external things, whether it's uh, circumstances in my life, they're not causing me not to believe that God loves me deeply. But there's a fourth category, and that is, are you experiencing and living inside of this great love? Is it, is it really marking your identity enough to where it, the love of God oozes out of you? It comes out of you. It shows up in places even unexpected that are there. Um, I want you to look at uh, a great passage of Scripture in John chapter 15. Um, John chapter 15, we have this for you on the screen as well. Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's a long passage, but right in the middle of this, um, long discourse, he says, he talks about loving the Father, and so let me read this beginning of verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And my command is this, love each other as I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend, Jesus tells his disciples there. One of the ways that we actually experience the love of God or know that we are deeply loved um, is that uh, it, it shows up inside of us and it comes out of us. So we're no longer looking outside of ourselves to find this great love, to find this acceptance, this approval from everyone else. But because we have God's acceptance, God's approval, we're actually content. And we're not constantly looking around trying to satisfy it or fill that. And, and when we're able to do that, as he says here, we're actually able to love other people, which is this command that God has given us. He's, he has told us to love other people, to truly listen and make a conversation about someone else and not about you. To show up to something and your goal is to ask, how do I serve? How is it that I, I let down my expectations, give up my plans for the sake of somebody else? How is it that I am going to love this person in my family, love this person in my office? What, what do those things actually look like? And we know that one of the ways that we do that is whether we serve or give or listen or give up our plans or whatever that is, uh, it is a laying down of our lives for the good of another. As it says here, no, there is no greater love than to lay down your life for uh, one's friend. Many of you know this, uh, s- this reality that Julie and I walked through last year. A little over a year ago, one of my good friends, um, we uh, went to school together and then raised our kids together, worked together for several years. He's also a pastor, a pastor in Texas. And um, he was, late one night, he and a buddy were driving a trailer somewhere. And when they topped, they were driving on the interstate, topped the road, and in the middle of the road, there was a car. Uh, that was actually on fire in the middle of the interstate. Super dangerous situation. So my friend John pulls his car over to try to, uh, to try to see how he can help. And so he and his friend get out, and this car that's on fire, it's a long story as to how it kind of got there and what it had hit to cause this disruption in the road. But they were able to get out both of the, the driver and the passenger out of the car on the side. As they finally got the, the passenger out that was there, he and his friend, a semi comes up the road and ends up taking John's life. Um, John pushed his buddy out of the way and saved uh, this, this guy who was a ch- member of his church, saved him and the two passengers, but John uh, was killed tragically in that situation. Um, and so we were left with all these questions, and John was, in our mind, the guy that could fix anything, solve anything. He had a go bag in his car ready to go at any moment's notice to help no matter what. 
And in this split second, he made a decision to, without thinking, because uh, without thinking to go and help and to rescue. And he did. He rescued and gave his life for the sake of another. And so he has four young kids. And um, we, every time we see them, and we do, we vacation with them. We go back to, to see them down to Texas. And when I see his boys, that's what I tell them. I tell them the story of their dad. They need to hear it over and over and over. It's that your dad gave his life for the sake of another. And their dad was a pastor. So they heard their dad saying this over and over about who Jesus is. And because Jesus has done this, that we can be people that can do the exact same thing. Is that we can actually make our lives about others um, as well. And John tells, um, John's story actually tells that very same thing. And the only way that John or anyone else um, could lay down their lives, and even in small ways, lay down our preferences for the sake of someone else, is when we have been deeply loved by God. And it's changed the way we understand who we are, our basic identity. And then we live out of that new identity that we have in Christ, that we don't have to listen to the accusations. We don't have to be defined by our circumstances. We don't have to have false views of God's love for us. We can actually own up to the worst mistakes we've made, own up to our sins, bring them to God, and realize that when we do that, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we get to sing songs that allow us in this fourth way to experience the love of God. In just a moment, right after I pray, you're going to have a chance to hear a song and just stay where you are and reflect on this song. It's a beautiful hymn, over 100 years old. It's the song I started out with this morning in asking, can you fill in the blank in this song, this love of God? I'm going to read the words for you. You'll get to hear them in a second. But the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forever endure the saints and the angels' song. We are commanded um, and invited to love and give our lives away as people who have been shaped, our very identity, been shaped by this great love that God has for us. Not a generic love, but a love that he's demonstrated through his son, Christ, who died for us, who overcame death, was raised from the grave, and gives us new life. You'll have a chance to hear a song about that great love of God, and then right after that, to have a time of communion as well. So Paul is going to lead us through that. So if you're at home, uh, this now would be a good time uh, to go ahead and grab those elements and make sure that you're ready to experience that as well. Let me invite you now to please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this great passage of Scripture. Uh, thank you for the letter to the Romans uh, that makes sense. So makes so much sense of our own uh, lives. God, if there's anyone who fits in one of these categories this morning, if they find themselves um, not knowing the love of God, pray that you would direct them that way. If they find themselves not understanding your love. God, give them further and further insight into what's true. Help them uh, find conversation partners to talk amongst their small groups about how to under- better understand the love of God. God, if, if people are having trouble believing it, they know it, but they just can't quite believe it. God, I pray by your grace, you may help them do that today. And then for those that may have believed this for a long time, but it's not fresh, it's not real, they're not experiencing it, they don't feel like love is flowing out of them. God, we ask for your mercy as well uh, to be able to experience your love again today, even as we reflect on this song. So God, this morning as we, um, as we close in prayer, I just I want to read uh, the last verse in our text this morning, and that is this, that greater love has no man than this, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen.